Good morning, Grace Covenant Church. I have the pleasure of bringing the word of the Lord to you this morning, and I'm very excited to do so. If you would open in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, the 44th Psalm this morning is where we will be. If you have, or if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Um, if This will be found on page 470. And if you don't have a Bible, we want to encourage you to take that home and hold on to that and read it as much as possible because it is the very word of God for you. Now this morning, as you are opening your Bibles and and getting to the 44th Psalm, I, I want to address a question I'm sure we've all thought about throughout our lives. When we experience things that are not easy, which are hard, we typically ask the question, and I think it's good, we ask the question, why? That question that always nags at us, why? And maybe, maybe you've heard it a different way. Maybe you've heard people say something like, why do bad things happen to good people? And I think the immediate response, kind of the chippy response we might give back is, there are no good people, right? Go look at Romans 3. Or, or we might say, there was one good person, and it was Jesus. And yes, and amen. Uh, I, I believe those same things too. But when we are believers in Christ, and we experience something hard, it's okay to ask the question, why? It's okay to struggle with the question, Why? and to work through that question. So this morning, what we're going to attempt to do by the aid of the Holy Spirit is we're going to think of a biblical response to hard providences. A biblical response to hard providences. This morning in Psalm 44, we are going to be going over what is known as a lament psalm. There is a crying out to the Lord for an injustice that has occurred. And the sons of Korah, who have actually authored the previous two Psalms that we've gone over in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, are the authors again. And what has been typically in Psalm 42 and 43 seen as Psalms that were more of a um, singular lament, one person's lament, Psalm 44, we'll see, is more of a national lament. It is all the people lamenting about what is going on in their lives. So this morning, we're going to break up Psalm 44 as we attempt to look for a biblical response to hard providences. We're going to break up Psalm 44 into three sections to help us navigate this morning, this psalm. The first section is going to be verses 1 through 8. And if you're looking for a way to kind of think through Psalm, or verses 1 through 8, it is going to be a rehearsal of God's past faithfulness. Verses 1 through 8 is going to be a rehearsal of God's past faithfulness. Verses 9 through 22 are going to be thinking through what is a hard providence and a complaint. Okay, a hard providence and a complaint. And then verses 22 through 26 is going to be uh, how the psalmist ends and hoping in God and his request. So that's That's how you can kind of line out uh, what we will be doing this morning as we seek to go through God's word. And what I'm going to do is that we're actually just going to read a chunk at a time. Instead of reading all of Psalm 44 and one shot, we're just going to read it in those chunks to kind of help us work through it this morning. So let's begin in the beginning then. 
Psalm 44, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my own bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. For you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Say la. So this is a good point to stop and think through what we just read through in verses 1 through 8. In the very beginning, we have the psalmist pointing back to God and what he has done. And it's interesting because this is going to be a theme that goes throughout this psalm. He says, oh God, we have heard with our ears. And what have we heard? Because our fathers have told us about your mighty deeds. Well, what is the psalmist kind of uh, leading us to here when he's talking about that they have heard what their fathers have told them? Well, he, he's actually pointing to the covenant. He's actually pointing back to their fathers being faithful to the covenant that God made with their fathers, and now the psalmist finds himself in two. He's one of these covenantal people. And so if you would turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we get this kind of outline for us. We have an understanding of this when we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. I want you to hold on to these words, okay, as we continue to work through Psalm 44. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, me being Moses, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you to today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the psalmist is saying, we have heard of all your mighty deeds because our fathers obeyed the commandment you gave them to teach us, to tell us about all of your statutes, all of your commands, all the things that you have provided for them. 
And then he expands on this. He, he starts to talk about the sovereignty of God, like we heard about today in Acts chapter 16, and how Dennis was praying for us this morning about God's sovereignty and about his will. And we see how the psalmist then performs or rehearses these mighty deeds. He says that you drove them out with your hand, drove out the nations. And he's talking about not the Israelites, right? He's talking about clearing out the other people to make room for Israel. And then he contrasts that, but them, or our fathers, you planted. You afflicted these other people, but you set our fathers free. And not only did you do this, but you didn't do it by their own strong arm or their sword, but your arm saved them. See, the psalmist is working through, he's rehearsing back the sovereignty of God and what God has done in the history of Israel. This is important for him to be encouraged. God drove out these nations. He planted them in the land. He set them free from bondage and he granted them salvation. So we see these other things he's going to talk about in verse 3 when he's talking about how he did it. He said, your right hand and your arm. I want you to, to understand that your right hand and your arm is actually, for the Old Testament, talking about God's power. Right? This is, this is helping us in poetic language to realize how powerful, how sovereign God is in all of his acts. It is talking about his power. And then we see the light of your face. And when we think about the light of God's face, it's not just this glowing projection that's coming out, but what the psalmist is talking about here is actually God's presence with his people. It's, it's God being with his people. This is how they were able to come into the land, be set free, have salvation. And then he tells us the why. Now, it wasn't because they were strong and mighty. No, it was because they were weak and needy that God delighted in them. So the delight that God has for these people isn't because of what they've done. Because we just talked about that they weren't strong enough. They couldn't save themselves. It was God who was doing all things. God gave them his delight. It wasn't earned by them. We see this all about Israel and all of the Bible, that they were weak that they needed to be saved. And that's why God delighted in them because from before the foundations of the earth, he chose them. So nothing about them was delightful. This was his complete undeserved delight in his people. Israel was weak and needy, not strong and noble. And that is how God is glorified in his delight of such a people. So he rehearses what has happened in the past, but then he rehearses what he's actually experienced with God himself. He claims, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for us. And then he says, through you. So this isn't by his own doing. He says, through you, we have pushed down our foes. Through you and your name, we tread those who rise up against us. He says, we don't even trust in ourselves, but we trust you for your salvation. You have saved us, God. Not our own strength, not our own military cunning, but you. And because of that, because of your salvation, we will boast in you continually. I just love how God, unbeknownst to us, 
as we're working together to prepare uh, teachings and Sunday school and sermons that all of these lines cross over. I'm seeing Ted smiling and nodding his head, right? Because we are seeing here that we're not boasting in ourselves. We are only boasting in what God has done in our salvation. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's rehearsing all of these things. And then he says, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Your name, O God, for God's name's sake, we will be thankful. We will thank you for your name forever. Now you might be saying, Andrew, this doesn't sound like a lament. This sounds like a praise psalm. Like it's all good. Everything's great. He's reminded of God's past victories. He is thinking of his own. And then we get that Selah, which tells us to stop, to think, to meditate on what we just said. Friends, what we're seeing here is that the psalmist has laid for us a foundation for where we're about to go. Note that he says, we will be thankful. We will give thanks to your name forever. He says that before we're about to get into some real hairy verses. He says, we're going to boast in you and we're going to give thanks to your name forever, even though we're about to get into this lament. So when we're thinking about how to deal with hard providences biblically, the first thing that we do is rehearse. We rehearse what God has done in the past and in our own lives and maybe in our own salvation. And then we get to verses 9 through 22. Here's the word of God. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. A laughingstock literally means a shaking of the head when people think of you. Ooh, those Israelites. You've made us a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us till we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a big change to where we were in verses 1 through 8. That takes a dark turn into some real deep places of the psalmist's heart. And why is that? It's because they have suffered humiliating defeat. They have been crushed in battle. They're going out as the covenantal people of God with God on their side. We can't lose. And then they get dominated. And they run. They're scattered. What is happening? 
I want you to see that the psalmist begins with, with focusing on the sovereignty of God, right? And the victories. And then the psalmist continues with the sovereignty of God in this loss in his battle. You is repeated six times in the following six verses, solidly laying a foundation to understand that whether it is victory or defeat, it is securely placed in the hands of the Lord. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us a taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock. This was no small defeat. It was not by a close margin that they were destroyed. This defeat was humiliating. They have been rejected by God. They've been disgraced by God. They have been left alone, made like sheep to be slaughtered. This isn't just um, poetic language. They were actually dying. They were scattered among the nations, sold for a small price, made a laughing stock. Disgrace was ever before them. And the psalmist said, and he was in shame. So then we have to ask this question. The question that we started off with, why? Why did this happen? The psalmist is asking it. He's making complaint, right? God, we're your people. Why were we destroyed? What happened? Why did this happen to us? And so maybe we're sitting back here and we've gone through some psalms together and we'll say something like, maybe, maybe did the people of Israel sin? Was this a chastising of them? Was this a, a, a humiliation they needed to be, uh, for them to repent of their sin? We've seen that happen before. We understand that that's a possibility for the people of God. Did they not follow in covenantal faithfulness? Are they being disciplined by the Lord? And you know, this isn't the only time in Scripture when we, we expect to, to have the answer is, yes, they sinned. In fact, the disciples have asked this question in other places. If you turn with me into John chapter 9, there's a very similar question that's asked. And then for your notes for later this afternoon, go read Luke 13 and scratch your noggin on that one. But in John chapter 9, in the first two verses, we read this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now we're going to get to the answer here in a little bit. But this same type of thought goes through not just our minds, not just through the covenantal people in Israel, not just through their minds, but it even goes through the disciples' minds. Why did this happen? Why did we get destroyed? Why is this man blind? What is going on that there is hard things in this world and that there are hard things that we experience? And so we want to ask these Israelites about these questions. However, we've already received the inspired answer by God. We already received the answer that these Israelites, remember we read Deuteronomy 6, right? Not too long ago. And then we read their answer. We have not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. 
our heart where the word was supposed to dwell and our heart was supposed to be with you, our heart has not turned back from you. Nor have our steps departed from your way. That's another way of saying from your statutes, from your commandments. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us in the shadow of death. So we're seeing this godly inspired answer here, right? This is inspired by God, this psalm, this answer to our question that we might be thinking. And he continues to to give his lament, his complaint before the Lord. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, this spreading out is, is literally an act of worship. It's like a bowing down and spreading out our hands to another God. If we had done this to a foreign God, would not you, God, have discovered this? Here's the sovereignty of God again, or his all-knowingness, his omnipotence, his omniscience, that's what I meant. For he knows the secrets of the heart. If God knows the inner man in the inner heart, he knows that the psalmist is not lying. And then he ends with this way of, of resigning himself. He's given this complaint, which, by the way, guys, is godly. It is okay, but I want you to note how it started. Rehearsing the wonderful deeds of God and then going into the complaint. And then he says, yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the answer to our question of, did they sin? The answer is a resounding no. They had not sinned. This is why the psalmist can make such a graphic complaint to the Lord. This is part of his process of lament. We remember God, what he has done for us. We praise him for it. We make a righteous complaint against the law of God. And then we turn to ask God for his help. This should remind us of one who had dealt with a brutal providence in his life. Job, right? When we think of hard providences, Job is one of the first persons that we typically think of. And we, we read this from Job. He says, though he slay me, though he kill me, I will hope in him. And usually people leave out this last part, which is, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Now, we know how that turned out for Job, right? I don't think a lot of us want to be wrapped up in the whirlwind. Um, And maybe we need that. Maybe we need that humbling experience. But notice his language, going back to the psalmist. Notice his language. He says, but for your sake. Notice what he doesn't say. I hate you, God, for doing this. I will never follow you again. I'm going to turn to the gods of my neighbors now because you have left me. You have have left me in disgrace. No, the psalmist resigns to say, yet for your sake. Meaning God is sovereign over all of it. The brutal defeat by the enemy. And this was done for what? What was this done for? Why did this happen? For God's name's sake. For his glory. Now, that's the quick and easy answer 
to the most difficult question you'll ever have to wrestle with in your life. Whatever the hard providence may be, whatever God has laid at your feet, whatever valley you are currently walking through and you ask the question, why? It is for God's namesake. It is for his glory. That's what we heard about this morning again in Acts 16. when We were talking about all things work together for good. We just don't understand good. We don't understand how that plays out in his divine, hard providences. I think the Puritans help us here. The Puritans have a way of describing this act of of laying yourself down at God's feet. They call it resignation. So if you're following me so far, we've had one note, which is verses 1 through 8 is the rehearsal. We rehearse God's glory, his works of salvation all through our life. And then we get to this section, which is our complaint of the hard providence. But it's initial, or not initially, but it is um, all about our resignation. So we we rehearse and then we resign. We resign. And this is how the, the Puritans talk about it, specifically John Flavel, or as I like to say, Flava Flav. In his Mystery of Providence, he says, he says this, it is here supposed to be the Christian's great duty under the apprehensions of approaching troubles to resign his will to God's and quietly commit the events and their outcomes to him whatever they may prove. Labor to work into your hearts a deep, and fixed sense of the infinite wisdom of God and your own folly and ignorance. This will make resignation easy to you. Whatsoever the Lord does is by his counsel. Ephesians 1, 11. His understanding is infinite. Psalm 147, 5. His thoughts are very deep. Psalm 95, or 92, 5. But as for man, yea, even the wisest among men, how little does he understand or how little does his understanding penetrate the works and designs of providence? We have to resign that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful workings in our life. So the psalmist then, moving from this, moving from remembering, rehearsing God into the resignation of his complaint and lament to lay it at his feet and even say, for your sake we will be killed as we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He resigns that to God's holy will and then he goes to the request. Verses 23 through 26 Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The experience of this tragic providence 
fuels the psalmist's cry unto God for the salvation he has previously given him and to what his covenant promises him. He does this by calling out to God to remember his people. We see verses 23 through 26 using uh, a few different imperatives. Friends, the psalmist doesn't actually think that God is sleeping. He is just trying to use poetic language to rouse God to action, which is what we can do too in our prayer. So we hear things like, awake, rouse yourself, do not reject us, rise up and redeem us. He's calling God to remember his people. Remember this people that he said, this people is God's delight. He delights in this weak and needy and crushed people whose souls are bowed down or downcast, which is like what we read in in Psalm 42 and 43, right? It's this movement of, why are you downcast, O my soul? The psalmist is saying it again here. Our souls are bowed down to the dust. God, remember us. And then he calls to, again, this theme. So we had the theme of the covenant. We also had the theme of God's name. Doing things for his sake. And he says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Not that we would be saved, but for your covenant that you've made with your people. This is all about you. You saved us in the beginning by your mighty arm. You have have actually sent us out to defeat. You, it is for your name's sake that we are being slaughtered. But redeem us for your name's sake, for your covenantal, faithful, never stopping, always and forever love. Your covenantal love. Friends, there's no uh, happy ending to this psalm of hard providence. It's like the answer that Christ will give his disciples, right? The question was, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And what did Jesus answer him with? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is the answer to all hard providences. Whatever you may be going through, this is the answer. That God might be displayed in you during this time. That you would rehearse, resign, and then request God for help. And that his glory would be made manifest even in your suffering. So during a hard providence, the psalmist rehearsed God's salvific faithfulness of the past. He resigned his complaint of why things were not right. He resigned himself to trust the brutal providence of God. And then he requested to God to save the people for his name's sake and for his steadfast covenantal love. This was what the psalmist was trying to lead the people of Israel in, in a covenantal people, in a covenantal relationship with their covenantal God to lament before God. 
in this song and this psalm to sing together. But how do we apply this psalm for us? How do we think through hard providences? And I say us, let me be very clear. I don't think I mean every single person in this room. I think those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and have placed their faith on him and are following him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we celebrated Bennett, as he was, was gone down into the water and was raised up, as we celebrate that sign of what God has done in his life. So Bennett, I'm speaking to you this morning and to all of us who are in Christ. What, how do we take this psalm for ourselves? Now, I want you to remember that the best commentary on Scripture is what? Scripture. Okay, we want to see how Scripture interprets Scripture. Specifically, how the New Testament will then turn and interpret the Old. And friends, do we have a beautiful interpretation here. We have a beautiful interpretation that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write in that Mount Everest of chapters in the book of Romans in chapter 8. There are so many theological nuggets packed in here in chapter 8, and I must give you a flyby of them all before we can come and get down to how Paul quotes it here. He quotes Psalm 44, verse 22 of all verses. And this is how he lays the foundation for that. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says that we no longer have condemnation in Christ because he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. We read that we now have the Spirit which sets our minds on the things of the Spirit. We are called children of God. We see that our suffering of our present age will not even compare with the glory that will be revealed to us. We have a hope now that saves us. We have a spirit who intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We see that if we love God, then all things, yes, all things will work together for good. We have been predestined and justified. And if we have all of this in Christ, who can be against us? And it is in this context then that we walk into how Paul quotes this very verse. Romans 8. I'm going to start in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Maybe you can say a hard providence as it is written. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Remember what, who Paul is writing to, these Romans who will eventually be thrown into a coliseum and torn limb from limb by wild animals. He's saying, yeah, you are sheep that will be slaughtered. And why? For God's name's sake. 
And he goes on to say, and he asks the question, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever hard providence you are in right now, Whatever you're experiencing, believer, Christ has never left you. He has promised that he will always be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you, no matter what the hard providence is. Do you actually believe that? Do you understand what that means? The God of the universe is with you right now. Man, that should just floor you. He's with you. And he's not just standing there looking at you with a smiling face. He's working on your behalf, even in this moment. He's indeed interceding. He is praying to God for you, friend. In your hard providence, he's saying, yes, pray for him. Help him, Father. Help my sheep. My sheep who is walking out to be slaughtered. Help him. You know, the the saints of old called this a martyr's psalm. One that they would sing as they were going off to be killed. Sing Psalm 44. Christ is always with you and nothing will separate him from you. Nothing can. This is the God of the universe who's not only praying with you, but is with you in all of these things. He's advocating for you to the Father. Father, He is mediating for you to the Father. Oh, what a friend we have in Christ. Oh, what a sure and steady anchor amidst the storm of hard providences. Friends, remember this morning to rehearse the wonderful deeds of God to resign your complaint and your misunderstanding to the divine will of God and then request him to move, but never forget that Christ is with you even now. Let's pray. Oh God, you have not promised us ease in this life. In fact, Christ, you have told us the persecution is coming that hard times is coming, that because of the brokenness of sin, whether we're in sin or not, bad things will happen to good people in Christ. Things that we will never be able to understand. Things that we will always long for the answer and never get. Things that we will weep until we are glorified and in your presence. Father, would you recall to us your divine wisdom, your holy providence. May we resign our complaint to rest in your divine wisdom, grace, and goodness. And then, Father, may we cling to the anchor that is Christ amidst the storm. He, the sure and steady anchor of our souls, knowing that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And it is in his precious name 
that we call upon you, Father. Amen.